right now that you've sat down, we don't always do this, but we're going to read Psalm 100. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Listen carefully to God's word. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Would you join me in prayer as you stand? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now and do what only you can do. That you would make your presence known to us. That we would sense that you're here. That you would speak to us and confirm your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So Psalm 100 is actually a song. Scholars say that it was sung or chanted when people came to the temple to offer what's called a Thanksgiving offering. We'll put it on screen from Leviticus 7. If he offers it for a Thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the Thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. I love, I, I usually smear butter on mine, but smear oil here. Um, you see, from the beginning, God knew that it was really important for your heart, for people's hearts, to actually give him thanksgiving offerings. And we're not going to talk that much about that today, but that's an important thing for our heart. But we want to talk about why do people offer thanksgiving offerings? I recently saw the movie Hacksaw Ridge, and if you haven't seen it yet, I'm just kind of betting that you probably won't, so I'll spoil a little bit, but not that much. If you've seen the trailer, it kind of tells the whole thing anyway, so... Um, but uh, Hacksaw Ridge is part of the Battle of Okinawa. Okinawa was an uh, island in the Pacific. During World War II, this took place. And the film's a very graphic and bloody depiction of that battle. And the American soldiers have arrived on the beach where it's relatively safe. And they have this rope ladder. It's about eight people wide. And they have to climb up. I don't know, it looks like it's like 75 feet or something to the top of this cliff. And then they have to push back the enemy who is entrenched in um, bunkers with machine guns. And so as, and the main character, his, his name is um, Desmond Doss. And as Desmond's group of about 100 guys arrive, the other group that's just been up there is leaving. And they've just been decimated. They look like either the walking dead and many of them are dead. And so they're told, now you get to go up there. And so it, it just seems pretty hopeless. And his unit gets up there, and more than half of them, there's just a little over 100 of them, that more than half get either shot, killed, or wounded. And then the rest retreat and go down, back down the um, rope ladder to the beach that's relatively safe, except for Desmond. Now, Desmond is a different kind of guy. You don't find out until late in the movie why this is true about him, and I'm not going to spoil that part. But um, he refuses to touch a gun. He's what we call a conscientious objector, and he's come to these conclusions. And yet, but he didn't think it was fair for him to stay home and be safe while all of his buddies were out there risking his lives. So what he's going to do is, without touching a gun, he wants to rescue the wounded. And after they've just gotten cut to pieces up on top of this cliff, 
Everybody else retreats down and he stays. And nighttime comes. And he starts sneaking around on the battlefield, grabbing the wounded, taking them to the edge of the cliff, and lowering them down by hand in a rope. And he does this all night long. And he rescues 75 guys. He gets the Medal of Honor. First time a conscientious objector ever got that for um, above and beyond the, the call of duty and risking himself so much. It's, um, it's quite the deal. Uh, and, and, yeah. Now, when those men who were lying wounded in the foxhole were lying there, what do you think some of them were doing? Yeah, some of them were praying. And what do you think they were praying? God, please rescue me. And Desmond was the answer to their prayers. You ever heard of what's known as a foxhole Christian? Foxhole Christian, some, somebody, they're in a war, they're in a, they're in a, a ditch where they're hiding, and they're afraid they're going to die, and they turn their life over to Jesus because they're afraid they're going to die. And sometimes they'll make bargains with God and say, God, if you will just rescue me, I will give you this, or I will become a more moral person. I'll give up that. And sometimes they even say that, you know, I'll be a pastor. That's what, that was not, you know, that, that's what, that's what happened to my Uncle Harvey in World War II, literally. Now, he wasn't my uncle, actually. He was my dad's cousin. My parents were both only children, so I had no uncles or aunts, so we called him Uncle Harvey, okay? And the uh, closest person I had to an uncle. And Uncle Harvey was in a foxhole, afraid he was going to die, and he promised God that he would become a pastor if he would spare his life. And then he had a career, but in his late 50s, he honored that vow and became a Presbyterian pastor. It was his Thanksgiving offering, thankful to God for sparing his life. This is one of our prayer wreaths. Every ribbon on this wreath represents an answer to prayer. You prayed, God answered, you commemorated it on the wreath. It's, it's in a sense, it's your Thanksgiving offering, commemorating what God has done for you. It's a beautiful thing. And I hope you'll continue. We've got a new one around the corner that has fewer ribbons on it for you to put ribbons on. Janice and I had a wonderful answer to prayer. We're going to have to put one on there. The temple in, in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, people would come and they would offer that Thanksgiving offering that we talked about. Some loaves, some wafers, some smearing of oil. Um, but while they did that, guess what they sang? Psalm 100. That's what the scholars tell us. So Jesus probably sang Psalm 100. It might have been one of his favorite songs. I mean, I like Psalm 100. You, everybody I know likes Psalm 100. It was, I, I'm just going to think it was one of Jesus' favorites. You can't prove it wasn't. So let's go through it together. Would you open up an app or a Bible to Psalm 100? It happens to be on page 500 in the Pew Bible, so easy to find. And although it's a very small psalm, that doesn't stop a pastor from saying a lot about it. So I'm going to start at verse 1 in Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Now, why would we do that? Especially if you're like an introvert and you don't want anybody to hear you singing or something. Why would you do that? Actually, the answers are at the end of the psalm. And what we would probably do is, okay, we're going to tell you all the reasons why you should be motivated to do something. Then we're going to tell you what to do. This is kind of the opposite. It's saying this is what you need to do. And then it gets to the end and tells you why in the world you would want to do that. But I'm going to reverse it so that we can walk through it and then come back to the beginning. So look at verse 5. For the Lord is good, 
His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. The Lord is good. What do we mean when we say the Lord is good? Just, I want to just pause for a minute and think. What, what does it mean in your mind when you think God is good? My favorite quote from A.W. Tozer, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes to mind when you think God is good? Well, here are some of the things. He wants what is good. That's what God desires. He wants what is good. He wants it for his creation. He wants it for his angels. He wants it for himself. He wants it for people. He wants what is good for you. He also does what is good. He never never lies, cheats, never unfair. He tells the truth. He's just. He does things that are good for people. Even when it costs him a lot of pain or it requires a lot of patience on his part. He wants what is good. He does what is good. He also thinks what is good. One of the things that he delights in is he imagines what you're going to become like. Did you know that all of creation is waiting anxiously to see what you're going to become when you're transformed? He's also thinking about ways to do good things for people. The thing about God's goodness is that although we only get a taste of it now, in heaven you will actually feel it. It will emanate out from him You probably haven't had a situation that much like that in this life. But just like when you see a sunset and you go, oh, or other types of things, when you are in God's presence, it will just, the force of his goodness will just, you'll feel it. And you know what that will make you feel emotionally? Joy. Because goodness, when you feel it coming from God, it creates joy. Now, in contrast, the devil is actually evil. Uh, constantly lying and trying to hurt and destroy people, unjust, unfair, really ugly and repulsive. In the Garden of Eden, the devil in the form of a serpent persuaded Adam and Eve to actually doubt the goodness of God. said, so you really think that uh, God's looking out for you? That's kind of what they were thinking. And Did he really have good plans? And this, maybe the serpent was right that God just didn't want them to become like God. You should never doubt that what you think about God is important. What you think about God is going to determine a great deal about your life. And if you come to the place where you doubt that he really has your best interests in mind, well, when Adam and Eve did that, that brought death and evil into the world. The next phrase, his steadfast love endures forever. Now, God loves you unconditionally, not because you're nicer or better than other people. One of the ways that he proves that he loves you unconditionally is that while we were yet his enemies, that's when he died for us. So that's, that's pretty good proof that it's unconditional. It's not about what you've done. Unconditional love is a commitment to the best of someone for whomever they are. They are. In our group here, we have some people with aging parents. And they love them unconditionally, and they put a lot of time and even money into taking care of them, making sure that they're well taken care of. That's unconditional love. We also, I don't know if you've noticed, but on the patio, we have more toddlers and babies than we've ever had. And you can you just watch the mothers and the fathers kind of running around behind them, trying to make sure they don't fall off the wall or, you know, that they take their nap on time or so forth. And... 
all of you, when you were a baby, you had times when you were sick all night. And parents stay up. And they sacrifice. And some of these parents are just exhausted. But that's because they love their kids unconditionally. They want what's best for them. And the thing about God is He gives us those examples, but He loves you much, much more. Committed to doing what's best for you. He's actually committed to to making all things, even things that you think of as horrible and painful, because they are, to work out for you what's good for you. That's amazing. God's unconditional love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and it never ends. And the third phrase there in verse 5, and his faithfulness to all generations. What does it mean if someone is faithful? It means that they keep their promises. God always does what he says he'll do. He's going to provide for you the material things that you need so you can carry out his plan. He's going to shower spiritual blessings on you. He'll give you all the supernatural power you need to resist temptation. And he will make sure that you make it. He's promised that. You know, when we marry, we promise to be faithful when we take our wedding vows. And I've been told that when a spouse finds out that their spouse has been unfaithful, it's like a, it's like a knife to the gut or being kicked in the gut. It's an awful, horrible experience when, people are un, when a spouse is unfaithful. But the Lord will never do that. God is always faithful, no matter how people may have treated you. And I know, you know some stories of people who have been treated really poorly. But Jesus is our faithful spouse. He will, he'll never leave you or forsake you. He'll never lie to you. He will fulfill his promises because he's faithful. So that's verse 5. That's really the motivation for why we would do verse 1. But there's also some of the motivation in verse 3. If you look at verse 3, know that the Lord... He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Know that the Lord, He is God. Now, in the ancient world, what was the thing that kept getting the people of Israel over and over off track? Idolatry. They kept worshiping idols. And probably it went something like this. They looked at the nations around them and they all had beautiful temples and stone idols that represented these gods and they would bow down and they would offer them a sacrifice and and chant something exactly how it was supposed to, kind of like a a magical incantation. And they looked at these people and they thought, you know, they're more prosperous than we are maybe. Or their armies win. Or their children are more healthy. And I think that was part of the attraction to the idol worship. Now, in this country, we we don't have pagan temples hardly at all where people go and bow down to statues, do we? I haven't seen anybody do that. But do we still have idols? What are some of our idols? Money, fame, looks, athletic prowess, a bunch of different things. Psalm 100 is saying that the Lord is God, that he's the one true God. The others are false gods who will lead us astray. And even though we don't have lots of people bowing down to stone or wooden statues, there are other idols in our lives that will want to keep us from knowing and being dedicated to the one true God. You know, knowing that... Why would Psalm 100 say, well, he's the... He's, our God is God. Because it's amazing that God has reached out and revealed himself to us. 
And even more amazing is that once we get to know him, we find out he's, he's enthralling. He's beautiful. He's astounding. Look at the next verse there in verse 3. It is he who made us and we are his. Did you know that you are the most complex artifact we have ever found in the universe? Not you in particular, I mean, because I, I know some of you are a little complicated, but um, you just ask somebody who knows you and maybe you fit into that category. But um, complex in the sense of your physical body and especially your brain. This is, this is my iPhone. I really like my iPhone. It's got more computing power in it than computers did when I was learning about computers in college, okay? I mean, ones that filled the whole room don't have as much computing, computing power as this. And it, it, it's just down, miniaturized. It's amazing, okay? It doesn't even compare to you. The processes that go on in your brain at microscopic levels that are involved with how you feel and your desires and your character, and it's all connected in some way that we don't understand to your, your soul, to your spirit. You are absolutely phenomenal. We can't even reverse engineer you, knowing what you're like. We saw last week in Psalm 139 that God made you, you specifically. And because God is good, what he did when he made you is he said, I'm going to make you so that you will have all kinds of opportunities to choose well. To choose to to love God and follow him versus some other thing. Just giving you tons of opportunities. For example, in my life, when I was growing up, God made me shorter than all of my friends who were over six feet. And I always wanted to play basketball and block my shots. But what did that do for me? It quickly killed any aspirations I had of being a basketball star. If I'd been 6'7", it could have been a totally different deal. But it was very good for me not to idolize success in basketball. How does it make you feel to know that the one true God made you exactly the way you are because he knew that would be best? That would give you opportunities that would be unique to you where you could make Awesome choices. To know that about me, it makes me, I'm in awe. It makes me grateful. It it, it gives me joy. The next phrase in that verse, it is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. How many of you have seen those dog commercials on TV where they've got some dog that's been neglected? Maybe he hasn't been fed. Maybe he, yeah, he's got, you know, it's sad. That's right. It's, it's, uh, you know, they're, Sometimes they're all unkempt. Sometimes, you know, they're whimpering. It's just really sad. When we see people neglect dogs like that, we get sad, we get mad. Now, God made us, and we belong to him, but he doesn't compare us to dogs. What does he compare us to? Sheep. And Jesus is the good shepherd who lies down at the, to protect the sheep at the entrance to the corral so that any predator or thief has to go through him. Jesus is, is the good shepherd who takes us to green pastures and still waters, who restores our souls, as we saw in Psalm 23. He says in the book of John that he gives us abundant life. He's constantly watching out for anybody that would take us down, and he is stronger. No one can snatch us out of his hand. No one can um, steal us. He also says in John 10 that his sheep hear his voice and follow him. So we have a shepherd, God, who actually directs us. That's amazing. He helps us to actually experience goodness. And, then he, and, and he laid down his life for his sheep 
but he was so powerful that he was able to take it back up again. You belong to God because he made you. If I go to Home Depot today and I get some lumber and I get some nails and I go home and I build myself a shed, who does it belong to? Now that's a good question. It belongs to me. It's on my property. I bought it. I paid for it. I built it. It's mine. I made it. Okay? That's the way the law works. We don't necessarily tend to like that idea when it comes to us that we belong to God, but we do. Not only do we belong to him because he made us, all of us at times have rebelled, and that means that Jesus had to actually go and die for us on the cross so that he could purchase us a second time. We are actually doubly his, doubly purchased by him. We doubly belong to him. And when you think about that and all that he has put into you, he is not going to let anything happen to you that he cannot or will not turn into good. Awful, horrible, evil things, he's so powerful he can turn them into good. That's what he promises, that he will bring good out of it. The fact that you've been doubly his should give you extra confidence. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God made you specifically. Jesus died to buy you back. You doubly belong to him. He's committed to making everything work out for your good. Okay, I hope you still have your Bible open. We're going to go back to verse 1 now. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. So because God, as we see at the end, is good and loving and faithful, and as we see in the middle, he's the one true God who we are doubly his, that should make us very glad. If these are our thoughts about God, then it should be hard to contain our joy. Maybe harder for, you know, the extroverts, you know, kind of jump up and down and, and do that more. But still, it should be hard to contain our joy. And if you are an extrovert, you do not have to contain yourself in here that much. Some of you are following the cues of the introverts, and you can, you can say things if you want to. And then verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. You, you know that your joy is tied to gratitude, right? If you're not filled with gratitude and constantly thanking God, you won't, you won't feel much joy. How is your joy today? How much do you feel when, you, when you're in here like making a joyful noise to the Lord? I used to visit and preach at a lot of different churches when I was a missionary in, in Brazil, about 15 different churches. And so I would go and I would, I would talk to, to congregations. And I would be able to see, you know, were they awake? Were they alive? Were they quick on the jokes or whatever? And I want to say that of all those 15 churches, you guys, you guys really take the cake. I'm really impressed because you're, you're, you pay attention. You're, you're right there on the jokes. You're great at singing, much louder than they usually are. You're friendly. You're joyful. So that's how you come across to me as a group, and it makes me really, really happy. And I should probably tell you that more often. Nevertheless, I am aware that currently there are some of you that are kind of going through a difficult season with burdens that is kind of crushing. One of our elders is always telling me, and I appreciate it, that at any given time there's about a third of us that are in crisis, either a crisis in the marriage or with our kids or with our extended family or our finances or our health 
for our job, something along those lines. So I want to share with you just in the last few minutes some concepts and tools that I find helpful when life gets hard. These are some things that help my joy to be more resilient, okay? So I hope they help you. Okay, look at verse 2. We'll put it up on screen now so you don't have to keep it open anymore. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now, compared to most churches, many of you serve in some capacity. You Maybe you usher. Maybe you help out in the children's ministry, which, by the way, every church always needs more helpers in the children's ministry. We could do so much more. We need your help. So if you're not serving, that's a good place to, to, to serve. Some help with student ministry. Some help with the band. There are lots of different ways that you serve. But some don't. And one natural tendency, if you're not serving, is to think, well, I'm already tapped out at work or taking care of my family. I will serve when life gets a little easier, but now just doesn't work. Why do you suppose that in Psalm 100 we are told to serve, serve the Lord with gladness? Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, that's just kind of a generic sort of serving in the sense that my whole life is serving God. Well, let's go to the New Testament and see a little more specific. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Now, at this point, you might be getting uncomfortable. But let me ask you this. Do you think God is telling you to serve others because he wants to take something from you? Maybe your time, maybe your energy. Actually, God is trying to bless you. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Talk to some of the people that you see serving. If you're a student, talk to your small group leader. Um, Often their favorite time of the week is when they get to be in a small group with you and serve. The people who serve around here, they serve and they feel so much more blessed than when they don't serve. Serving increases our joy. So when... The psalm says, serve the Lord with gladness and to come into his presence with praise. Part of how that happens is we serve. And God gives us much more back. So if you're in a crisis or in a difficult moment and you feel like you just don't have any bandwidth to serve in any capacity, here's what I would suggest to you. Serve anyway. Do something small, something easy, something that's not going to overload you and, and see how it feels. And we'll work with you. You know, it used to be people would sign up to help with the children. They'd be there every Sunday, all school year long. It doesn't work that way anymore. We're just really happy when people, you know, volunteer one Sunday a month and they work the schedule out and everything. Take something small on and then see if when you serve, you don't just sense that because you were made in God's image, serving others increases your joy. Okay, look at verse 4. Enter his, well, we'll put it on screen, actually. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. So my second suggestion is one that if you've been around very long, you've heard me say before. And that is simply to learn to count your blessings. To take your smartphone, start a, start a list of your spiritual blessings, your social blessings, your, your material blessings. Set your alarm to go off three times a day. And when it goes off, just read your list. Take two minutes. Read your list. Thank God and ask the Holy Spirit to give you a grateful heart. If you become the kind of person who is permeated with gratitude, it will dramatically increase your joy so that when you come in here to, to, to worship with everybody, we won't be able to contain you. That would be cool. 
And then my final suggestion is something I'm currently working on. And that is to obey Psalm 100 whether I feel like it or not. Whether you're facing adversity, praise God anyway. See, when we praise God, what was it at the end of the psalm? Because He's good. Because He's loving. Because He's faithful. What was it in the middle? Because He made us. Because we're a sheep. We're important to Him. It puts our troubles in perspective. But often, we will feel the Holy Spirit begin to actually work supernaturally as we praise Him. We just feel more joy. Serving brings joy. Praising brings joy. In the midst of our big problems, one of the greatest examples in the New Testament is when the Apostle Paul and Silas, they were in a town called Philippi, and they were flogged. That's really bad. People die sometimes from that. And then they're thrown into prison in the dirt with all their you know, bleeding, and their, their legs are separated painfully in stocks. And they're there, and it's about midnight. You know what they're doing? They're singing praises to God. Now, who does that? Well, they did that. And you know how God responds? Earthquake. All the doors to the prison pop open. The shackles fall off. And the Philippian jailer, who was probably a hardened Roman war veteran, killed a lot of people, becomes a follower of Jesus. Him and his whole family that night. You just never know what's going to happen when you praise God in the midst of adversity. That's what I'm trying to do. Whenever adversity hits, just uh, it tends to come in waves. We've talked about that in this service. We all think, if I could just have one adversity a year, and then all of a sudden there'll be a set of five or six. So that's just the way it works. So count your blessings. Serve the Lord. Make a joyful noise as you give a thanksgiving offering. Sing His praises in the midst of adversity. It honors God if you do this. And if you do... Watch and see, because I'm pretty sure your joy will increase. Pastor Luke, would you lead us?